0: All right. So today's sermon title is kind of funny. Look at it. God's redemptive power in our dysfunctional lives. (laughs) I showed that to Laurel. She she kind of said, you can put that out there on the internet or Facebook. I said, yeah, I think that's a great advertisement, right? So there's probably a lot of people were thinking of coming, but when they saw I was going to talk about our dysfunctional lives, they stayed home today. I'm not sure. Yeah. God's redemptive power in our dysfunctional lives. There is a YouVersion Bible app for this message, and we're going to be Dealing with a lot of content uh, that is ahead. I want to kind of give you a spoiler before I begin. At the end of this, everything works out okay. There's a spoiler. At the end of this, the main character, whose name is Joseph, is ruling over his brothers, so to speak. And they're afraid because dad dies. And now there's no one to protect them from Joseph. And they treated him like dirt. And he notices that they're afraid. And he says this, he doesn't deny that they did a bad thing. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The saving of many lives. What he's saying is that behind the scenes, while there's an intense degree of dysfunction in the world in which we live, there is a God who is redeeming that dysfunction. Making that evil, making that loss, making that pain into something beautiful, something good. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Did I tell you there's a Bible app event available for this? I did. It could be your friend if you uh, want to follow along that way, or else uh, you can go to Genesis 37. That's where we'll be. So I said to some people before the service of different ages, I said, what is this phrase? Is this phrase something you're familiar with? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, is that a phrase you're familiar with? Yeah, some of you are nodding. Some of the younger guys are like, yeah, I never heard that phrase before. And honestly, I don't know that I ever heard it anywhere except for people like my dad would say it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, and here's where they got it, I'm pretty sure. Back in the days, before there was the internet and before there was television, there was this thing called radio. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before. And on radio, there were dramas. This is what I've been told my children. You know that show, the Christmas story with uh, you'll shoot your eyes out, kid? Every time we watch that, my daughter will look at me and say, Dad, is this the way it was when you were a little boy? I said, no, I'm not that old, right? So I don't remember the radio dramas. I'm not that old. But in those radio dramas, they would have, a lot of them were Westerns. And and they'd have to go from one scene to the next. And how do you do that when people can't see the scene? And so what they would do is they would have the marshal, who's captured by the outlaw gang up in the mountains, and it looks like he's going to be killed any minute. And then you'd hear the voiceover say, Meanwhile, back at the ranch, and they'd show you that back at the ranch, the good guy was putting together a posse to go save him. You know, So there's something bad happening here, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, there are good plans cooking, and everything's going to be okay. I guess you might call that scene cutting. Is that what you call that? That's what I'm calling it. Scene cutting. It's really become more natural. We don't even need the meanwhile kind of thing anymore. For example, C-3PO and R2-D2 are hanging out in the control panel. I'm sorry, not the control panel, the control room. Yeah, look, you're shaking your head now. You're such a nerd, Mike. <laughs> I, watch I watch it all the time. C-3PO and R2-D2 are hanging out in the control panel. Me- no, the control room. I'm not going to make it today. Meanwhile, Han, Chewie, Luke, and Princess Leia are down in the trash compactor, and it's beginning to close them down. Meanwhile... Obi-Wan Kenobi is trying to disable the tractor beam that holds their ship. And meanwhile, the stormtroopers are on the way. And you never heard the word meanwhile. They just cut from scene to scene to scene to scene. And that multi-layering was evidence to you. Multi-layering is common in stories today because multi-layering is common in life. That while you're going through whatever it is you're going through, meanwhile, there's something else that's happening that corresponds with that. And the story of Joseph and his brothers is an excellent example of that, although the story as you read it never gives you a clue about that. There's no actual cutaway to meanwhile in Egypt or meanwhile in Shechem. None of that is happening. But God is working in other places behind the scenes in Joseph's life. He is actually redeeming the dysfunction that is the family of Jacob redeeming. You know what that means. Redemption. Redemption means taking something that is dark, something that is despairing, something that is lifeless, and fixing it, healing it, infusing it with hope, enlivening it. Have you seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption? There's a hopeless situation where someone is placed in prison for an extremely long period of time, and it looks like it's going to be a miserable life. But the way he approaches prison and the way he interacts in prison, he takes a terribly bad thing and it is redeemed into a great story and a pretty interesting life. God specializes in redemption. When Christ died on the cross, the scripture tells us he was dying to redeem us from an old way of life to a new way of life, to enliven us, to take away our despair, to carry away our pain, to fill our hearts with joy. I happen to believe that the story of Joseph is one of the most powerful historic accounts of the redemptive power of God. And we're going to look at it today. And as we look at it, I want to suggest to you that that same redemptive power is happening in your own history, in your own life. So your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to begin looking at the dysfunction of, uh, speaking of dysfunction, there it goes. At the dysfunction that is in the life of uh, of Joseph and his brothers. And the first thing that we see, the first evidence of that dysfunction, is just a disagreement on what is right and what is wrong. Kind of a differing moral values. You know that if you marry someone who doesn't have the same set of moral values as you, there's going to be a degree of dysfunction until you straighten that out. It's going to cause conflict regarding money. It's going to cause disagreement regarding how you should behave toward your children and toward your parents and toward your children when they become parents. It's going to cause discord in how you spend your time and how you spend your lives. That kind of dissonance was evident in Jacob's family. We're going to read just about the whole of chapter 37. We're going to start with the second verse. It says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhau and the sons of Zilp Zilp yeah... Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Man, (laughs) I want to know what they were doing. Don't you? I'd like to know what that bad report is. It's not that I'm nosy. I'm just interested. I just want to know what that report is. doesn't tell us what it is. You may have heard people speaking about this passage. I know I have, and they kind of suggest that Joseph is a tattletale, and they criticize him for being a tattletale, but the text really doesn't Give you enough evidence to say that. What it does say, or what it does let us know, is that Joseph has a higher standard of morality than his brothers do, at least these brothers. And those differing positions on morality were causing discord. But hear this sentence, because I'm going to say it a dozen times God can redeem such dysfunction. The chapter doesn't show us what's happening behind the scenes, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is on the way. Let me give you a second piece of evidence regarding this dysfunction, and that is that the parents played favorites. (laughs) Someone sent me a text this week, and they said, you know, I'm thinking of the story of Jacob and Esau, and look at them playing favorites. They're doing that all the time. And I said, yeah, the Bible, just because it reports something doesn't mean it condones it, right? It reports a lot of bad things, and it's not condoning this at all. We saw it, though, back in Genesis twenty-five, twenty-eight, where it said Isaac, who had a taste for a wild game, loved Esau, but Rachel loved Jacob. And now we see it in verse three of this chapter. It says, now Israel, and remember, that's Jacob's new name. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Okay, I'm a pretty progressive guy, but I gotta tell you, I really prefer the King James name for the ornate robe, don't you? A coat of many colors, you know, Joseph's coat of many colors. But we're going to go with the ornate robe. It'll have to do, right? Yeah, but the point is, Israel loved Joseph more than the other ones. I would guess, I would guess that a lot of parents struggle with feelings of favoritism. And those feelings are probably subject to change at different stages in life. We used to tease my mom when the kids were together. We would say, you love Dave best. And Dave would say, yeah, she does. You love me best. And mom would say, I love you all the same. But we knew she was lying. We knew she was lying. Right? Most parents have the sense to say what my mom said. Most parents make it invisible when they're having that tendency to want to feel more strongly, positively toward one child than the other. And you would never, if you're a good parent, you would never want one child to feel he was loved less than the other. And you would surely not give an ornate robe to one of your children and let the other 11 get nothing at all. That's that's dysfunction. Jacob, however, he must not have gotten that memo. But God can redeem such dysfunction. This chapter doesn't show us what's happening behind the scenes. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is underway. Let's look at a third evidence of the dysfunction. These are emotionally driven personalities, and they make emotional decisions that they will live to regret. Human beings are kind of complex. And I'm guessing that you guys feel like, well, I make my decisions based on rational thought, on logic. But every successful salesman will just laugh when they hear you say that. <laughs> because they know that the car you drive, and don't take offense here, but I'm gonna say this, the candidate you vote for, and the food you choose to eat, and the clothing that you put on this morning, that all of those things were not just influenced by rational thought, that some of those things were influenced by your emotions. You know, when I'm lining up, when I used to wear suits and I would line them up on Sunday or in, in my closet, I always pull from the left, return to the right. Pull from the left, return to the right. It was a very logical way that I put on clothes. But now that doesn't happen because I don't wear suits and I have a larger variety. And it's just too confusing for me. And so my wife always picks it for me. If I picked what I was wearing, it wouldn't be logical. It would be chaotic, Right? But I guarantee you this morning, there was a good number of us who stood in front of the mirror for just a moment and said, yeah, I can't wear that. And logic had nothing to do with it. We are emotional creatures in every aspect of our life. And that's not just okay, that's good. Aren't you thankful that you fell in love? And don't you think it's neat when you just see your child or a grandchild and it makes your heart just flutter? And and isn't it cool too when someone wins the big game and you're so glad for them and you feel that in your heart? Emotion's a beautiful thing. But when emotion drives you to abandon your morality, emotion becomes a problem. And that's what was happening here. Look at verse four. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. (laughs) And if they'd have stopped and thought about it rationally, they would have had to say, it's not his fault, it's dad's fault. If there's anyone we should quit talking to, it should be dad. But they were emotionally driven and hot emotions were going to rule the day and that is dysfunction. But God can redeem such dysfunction. This chapter shows us that what's happening behind the scenes, I'm sorry, it doesn't show us what's happening behind the scenes. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is underway. Let's look at a fourth example. Something goes hand in hand with this is a failure to speak with tact. This is a problem in a lot of families because I think in most families, people feel like they can just be themselves and you should be able to be yourself in your family, but that doesn't mean you're exempt from seasoning your words with grace. You can't just say anything in your family, even in your family. You've got to use some tact. Can I give you a little advice just in case? Let me just say this. If you are the hated sibling, and you have a dream that someday your brothers will bow down to you, you might want to be careful about revealing the content of that dream to your brothers. You might want to use a little bit of tact. But Joseph is young, and he doesn't use tact. Verse 5 says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen, this is a dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rode up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And then Joseph turns around and does it a second time. The very next verse, 9. Then he had another dream, and he told his brothers, listen. He said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And his dad gives the interpretation in the next verse. It says, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to you, bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. You know, one of the wisest women that I know, has said this over and over again. Just because a thought comes into your head doesn't mean you need to say it. (laughs) That wise woman would be my wife. And she said that to her kids, to Tim, to Esther, to me. (laughs) Just because a thought comes into your head doesn't mean you need to say it. Maybe nobody gave that counsel to Joseph. Whether it was right or wrong for him to share that dream with his siblings, it added to the dysfunction because it added to the hatred. But God can redeem such dysfunction. This chapter doesn't show us what's happening behind the scenes. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is underway. Things go from bad to worse by the time we get to verse 12. The dysfunction turns into flat-out hatred, and it's enacted. Read with me from verse 12. It says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with their flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to one another. Come, let us kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Reuben appears to be a pretty good guy. Don't kill him. Put him in a cistern. Let him die that way. And then Reuben's going to come back maybe at night, get him out of the cistern, take him home back to safety. In a sense, his presence uh, is evidence that God is working behind the scenes. But the story gets really disturbing at verse 23. It says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now, when you look at the first sentence... The first phrase, actually, in verse 25, you just have to scratch your head and say, wow, what is going on with these guys? Because here's what it said. As they sat down to their meal, they looked up. Wait a minute. Do you see what just happened there? I'm just trying to imagine how that, you know, that short period of time went there. Like, okay, here he comes. Let's throw him into the cistern. Get the robe off him. Okay, throw him in the cistern. Okay, good. And then, uh, what do you guys want to eat? Wow. Oh. There's just a dysfunction, a darkness, an evil there that is downright disturbing. But again, evidence is creeping in that God might have something else in mind. Verse 25, they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brothers and cover it up with blood? Kill our brother and cover it up with his blood, cover up his blood. Let's come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So now Reuben, he must not be around when this happens because when he comes back, well, look what it says in verse 29. Remember who Reuben was? Reuben's the guy who's gonna rescue him. When Reuben returned to the cistern, he saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? You know what he's asking, right? How in the world can God redeem what you have done? How in the world can God make good come out of this? But here's the sentence. God can redeem such dysfunction. This chapter doesn't show us what's happening behind the scenes. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is underway. One more evidence of the dysfunction, a cold-hearted disregard for their own dad. Verse 31, when then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped it robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it and see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Jacob has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. you got to know, the very kids that did, they're adults now, the very sons who did this are now coming to comfort Jacob. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. You know what I'm gonna say though, right? God can redeem such dysfunction. This chapter doesn't show us what's happening behind the scenes. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is on its way. Now listen, in saying that, I am not making any suggestion that this dysfunction is small or trivial. These are terrible evils. And you and I see too much evil, even in our own circles. The problem of evil haunts human existence. Our lives are marked by family members who don't talk with one another. We all know of friends who used to be friends, but one betrayed the other, and they're not friends any longer. I would guess that you and I even know of people who once worshipped in the same pew together who now will not stand together in the same church. That's dysfunction. That's evil. It haunts humankind. Over a decade ago, there was a popular book called The Shack, Making Rounds in Christian Circles. How many read it? Okay, good. Probably about 20% of us put our hands up there. So the story was of Mac, uh, a man whose daughter was kidnapped, little girl kidnapped, and later her body was discovered in a mountain shack. Evidence indicated that the unthinkable had occurred. And in this story, Mac dialogues. He goes to the shack, and there he meets the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And he dialogues with them concerning his pain. The book is a book that wasn't really intended for publication. It sold millions in the end. It really isn't that good a book. I mean, an English teacher would probably give the writing a bad grade. and It just isn't that good a book. But it has a line in it. It has a line in it that when I read it, it made me stop in my tracks. And I said, that was worth the price of the book. But it's worth far more than that. Mac is sitting down with God And they're talking about what has happened to his daughter and evil, the problem of evil in the world. And Mac Mac asks a question. He actually makes a statement. He says, I just can't imagine any final outcome that would justify all of this. And he's talking about the murder of his daughter. And God responds, Mackenzie, we're not justifying it, we're redeeming it. You see, God never justifies dysfunction or evil or bad things. And you don't have to do that either. Sometimes someone will come to you and they'll say to you, I would believe in God, but he did this, or he let this bad thing happen. And you might feel in your spirit that you have to justify God and say, well, you know, maybe that person deserved that, or something stupid like that. You never have to justify evil. God does not justify evil. He redeems it. He redeems it. He never smiles at sin. He's never happy about the kind of thing that this chapter has detailed in the life of Joseph. But this chapter shows us that somewhere behind the scenes, God is working. That meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is underway. Let me help you see it. Let me help you see God's plans for redemption here. It's right in verse 36, kind of gives you the clue because there's that very word, meanwhile. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard. Something's happening. Something of which Joseph is unaware. And before this is all over, remember, Joseph will have suffered betrayal at the hands of his brothers, injustice at the hands of a false accuser. He will be imprisoned, and then he will be forgotten by someone who with just a word could have said, Hey, Joseph's a good guy, you should let him out of prison. But he forgot, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. I'm sorry, you're in prison for years. I just forgot. I, forgot, I forgot, I forgot. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, God is working redemption for this dysfunctional family. You can see God's hand if you'll look. We see that when Joseph went looking for his brothers, God actually put a man at the right place at the right time so that he would find his brothers. God puts people into our lives at the right place at the right time. Uh, Let me just go back in, in, in your memory here to about 10 minutes ago to verse 14. It says, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields, asking him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. Uh, there doesn't really seem to me to be a reason for this man to be in the story. I mean, what is that doing in the middle of this story? I've wondered that for years until this week as I was thinking about it. And I realized God is kind of giving you a hint that he's working behind the scenes. What's this guy doing out walking around in a field? And on top of that, this guy finds just Joseph. Joseph doesn't find him. I'm imagining the guy out in the field that for some reason, he went out there that God led him to go out there and he sees this young man and says, that guy looks lost. And he walks right over to him and he says, do you know where my brothers are? And he says, you know what? As luck would have it, I happen to hear where they're going. What a coincidence. None of the above. It was neither luck. It was not a coincidence. It was God working behind the scenes so that redemption could be underway. There's no way that Joseph would have known that at that time. But God's redeeming the dysfunction of his family. And then when Joseph arrives as a slave in Egypt, God sends him to get some lessons in management. He hasn't had a lot of them until this time. And he's really preparing Joseph to be part of the redemptive plan. Joseph learns management by being the master of Potiphar's house. It says in verse four of chapter 39, Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendants. Potiphar put him in charge of everything in the household and he entrusted everything to his care, everything he owned. He's managing a pretty wealthy guy's estate. And a few verses later, God kind of says, okay, you got your undergraduate degree. I'm gonna get you your master's degree. It's gonna be in prison. And in verse 39, he's in prison I'm sorry, chapter 39, he's in prison. In verse 22, it says, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison. And he was responsible for all that was done there. Huh, you know, it's almost like God has something in mind for Joseph to oversee later in life. He does. Later in life, Joseph, and this is not an overstatement, Joseph will manage a food storage and distribution product process that will save the civilized world. I'll show that to you shortly. But what I want you to hear now is that God is working behind the scenes for the redemption of humankind. There's no way Joseph would have known that. After a few years of training, Joseph kind of needs to be discovered if he's going to do anything. And God sends Joseph to this place, this prison, to be discovered. In verse 41, well, while he's in prison, while Joseph's in prison, there's a couple guys have a dream a cupbearer to the king and a baker. Each of them have their own dream, and they say, we had this dream, we wish to knew what it meant, and Joseph told them what it meant, and he was right. So then, in Genesis 41, when Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt, needed someone to interpret his dream, the cupbearer begins to speak. In chapter 41, verse 9, it says, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings, said the cupbearer. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that same night, and each dream had its own meaning. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he had interpreted them to us. And Joseph is discovered. It was his big chance on American Idol for his talent to be shown. And he goes to Pharaoh and he interprets the dream. So then in verse 41 of chapter 41, Pharaoh says, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Now we're not going to go into the details of it, but you're going to see that Joseph's family line is among the many who are spared because of what God is doing. That's part of the redemption. There is no way that Joseph would have expected this, but God is redeeming the dysfunction of his very own family. Before it's over, God will use Joseph to save the civilized world. God is bringing redemption, and he's ensuring that it happens. All of Egypt will be saved because of Joseph. All of Mesopotamia will be saved because of Joseph. All of Canaan will be saved because of Joseph. There is a worldwide famine and Joseph has been storing food away, and now he's distributing it. And it says in verse 57, it says, all of the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. No one saw what God was doing. But God made sure that Joseph found his brothers in Dothan. God made sure that Joseph was not killed and placed in a cistern. God made sure that Joseph was sent to Egypt as a slave so he could get there. God made sure that Joseph learned management in Potiphar's household and then upped the game in prison and then was discovered in prison. God made sure that Joseph knew how to to store the grain and to distribute it. And what God is doing, hear this. This will make sense to you if you think of it. God is honoring the Abrahamic covenant. Because if Joseph doesn't do this, so ends the line of the Messiah. And Jesus is never born in Bethlehem. (laughs) God is working behind the scenes. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, redemption is underway. Now, if you're like me, you probably need reminding that God has a redemptive plan for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever news you might have gotten recently, whatever dysfunction there is in your own family or in your workplace, whatever pain you feel in your heart for yourself or for others whom you love, whatever mountain stands in your path that must be moved, God is redemptive. And he is not trying to justify evil. That would be way too easy. He is redeeming it thinking about the dreams that God gave Joseph. And I think that was all part of the plan. It kind of provoked a little more anger in the hearts of his brothers. But I think there was another reason he gave Joseph those dreams. Because I would guess that Joseph needed a word from God to rely on when he was going through those hard times. He needed to hear from God so that when the way was dark, he could look back to that. A gentleman called me recently and told me he'd had an encounter with God and he feels God's hand on his life to go in a specific direction. And I rejoiced with him. I prayed with him. I listened to him. And then I said, I just want you to do me one favor. In your Bible, just write down what God has said to you right now and put a date on it. Because that word from God is what will keep you going later in life. When you know that God has spoken to you, then when you walk through the hard times, you know that he will take you through. Well, God has spoken to you. He has shown you his redemptive nature. He has offered you your very own redemption. Redemption, that's the word we use for what Christ did on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, he provided for us to be brought back from darkness. And when you turn your heart toward him, and when you trust in him, you find light, you find life, you find redemption. And you've been bought back from darkness. God has redemptive plans for you. And God has given himself to you, his Holy Spirit. If you are trusting in Christ and have turned from darkness to light, then his spirit lives inside of you. And he personally helps you as you walk the journey of life that you walk. Joseph was given a dream and another dream. You were given the presence of God right inside your heart. Joseph did not have that, but you do. He walks with you. He talks with you. He tells you you are his own. And even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil for he is with you. Furthermore, he has given you a church family there is a tie that binds hearts in Christian love, a fellowship of kindred minds, a concern for one another. And you're part of that family. I want to say, even if you're watching online, you're part of our family. I love it when I see the good morning, good morning from different ones of you. And we're part of your family as well. God has given me to you and you to me. He has redemptive plans for us. And God has given us a promise, his promise. When I think of promises in the Bible, one time I did a Sunday evening series on the the promises of Jesus. And uh, my very favorite one is in John 14. I'm not gonna ask you to turn there. You could if you'd like to. It might be in the Bible app. But I'm gonna ask you to just listen to what it says about Jesus And I want to give you the setting just to remind you that this was was right before Jesus was arrested and then tried and then tortured and then crucified to death. And he takes time to consider how that's going to affect his friends who follow him. And he speaks words of promise to them. Scripture says in John 14:1, Jesus says, We don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The promise of redemption is Jesus Christ. He is our redeemer. And he has redemptive plans for you and for all those whom you love. You may not always see those plans I am sure that there were moments, although the scripture doesn't reveal it, because I know human beings, I feel confident there were moments when Joshua was like, how is this happening? What is going on? But while Joseph was living his ordeal, meanwhile, back at the ranch, God's redemption was underway. And Joseph will come to such a recognition of that that when he has a chance to finally let his brothers know how wrong they were, how unfair they were, how unjust they were, it appears that he doesn't even think to mention it. They're afraid because they know what they did. And he says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You did something bad. God redeemed it. The saving of many lives. I want to be able to see that in my faith walk. I want you to be able to see that in your faith walk. So let's pray that we can see that as we walk together. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. Let's bow our hearts together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful, so thankful for your redeeming power. We are thankful, God, for this example of your redemption in Joseph's life. And as we walk the life of faith, may we walk with a, with a sense of confidence in your goodness and in your love and in your redeeming power. Most of us, Father, have given our lives to you. We have said we see that Christ has died for us and we, we want to be forgiven. We will follow you. And we trust in that redemption to pay for our sins may we trust that you have the ability to redeem all the pain and sorrow and trial and struggle and dysfunction that marks our lives with the same kind of faith. Because I do believe, Father, that behind the scenes, that meanwhile, back at the ranch, your redemption is underway. We trust you because of Christ Jesus. Amen.